thanks to you at home for joining me on this very special election Tuesday. The polls have just closed in the election for New York's third congressional district, and it would not be election night without our own Steve Kornacki at the big board, who we will be going to in just a moment as those results start rolling in. At this time, perhaps not exactly surprisingly, NBC News is characterizing the New York House 3 special election race as too early to call. Now, if New York's third third congressional district does ring a bell for you, that is probably because the district found itself in the national spotlight while it was represented by Republican congressman and serial fabulous George Santos, a man who was not a Broadway producer, nor a champion volleyball player, nor the victim of an assassination attempt, but pretended he was all of those things and more. Now, back in December, the House gave George Santos the boot. They expelled him. And today, New York's third congressional district is in the national spotlight for another reason. On the surface level, this is a local race between Democrat Tom Suozzi and Republican Mozzie Pillip. Mr. Suozzi is a three-term congressman from the district who left that seat to run for governor and is now coming back, trying to take back his old seat. The Republican in this race, Mozzie Pillip, is a member of the local Nassau County Legislature. And she's been framing much of her campaign around her position as a legal immigrant willing to take a hard line on what she calls illegal immigration. But this race is about a lot more than just these two candidates and their positions on these issues. This one congressional race could effectively decide the balance of power for the entire House of Representatives. Case in point, last week, Republicans tried and failed to impeach President Biden's Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Now, I should say for the record that Secretary Mayorkas has not actually done anything wrong. Certainly nothing illegal or impeachable, but Republicans in the House wanted to impeach him anyway. Their goal was to make a big public spectacle over the border that they could then use to blame President Biden even though Republicans are actually the ones holding up the immigration legislation aimed at addressing what is happening at the border. And that vote, that impeachment vote last week, failed. Republicans needed a simple majority, but the vote was split evenly, 215 to 215. It was such a close race. It was such a close vote that Republicans in the House went as far as to claim there was a Democratic plot, a conspiracy to hide Democratic members from Republicans so that the Republican whip count would be incorrect. They hid one of their members uh, waiting to the last minute, uh, watching to see our votes, um, trying to throw us off on the numbers that we had versus the numbers they had. So, yeah, that was a strategy at play tonight. The actual story of that failed impeachment vote, the non-Marjorie Taylor Greene conspiracy version of events, is that Texas Democratic Congressman Al Green was in the hospital. He was recovering from emergency abdominal surgery. But because the vote was important to him, Congressman Green took an Uber to the Capitol. He went to the attending physician's office to make sure his blood pressure and his temperature were still stable. And then Congressman Green voted from a wheelchair in his blue hospital garb. That is how thin the margins are in the House of Representatives. Al Green's dramatic hospital exit was the difference maker. Republicans right now can only afford to lose three votes. And as you may have noticed, the Republican conference does not always march in lockstep. 
The party needs every vote it can get. That is how much the special election in New York tonight matters. After that tied impeachment vote, the now former congressman from New York's 3rd District, George Santos, tweeted simply, miss me yet? So the stakes of this one congressional race are national. Now, tonight, Republicans once again voted to impeach Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and this time they prevailed by one single vote, 214 to 213, with three Republican defections. Articles of impeachment have been sent to the Senate, where there may be a possible trial. That makes Secretary Mayorkas, who again did nothing impeachable here, it makes him the first cabinet secretary impeached since the year 1876. And the reason Republicans had enough votes tonight, when just last week they did not, is because Republican House Majority Leader Steve Scalise is back on the Hill after taking a month-long absence for cancer treatment. That is how narrowly divided the House is at this moment. Every vote counts so much that major congressional decisions are being decided by medical absences, which is why so much national attention and national money has poured into this congressional race. The New York Times reports that outside groups have spent more than $15 million on this one congressional race. And that includes stuff like a pro mozzie Pillip super PAC paying more than a million dollars to run this 30-second ad in, the New- in New York during the Super Bowl. And fearing that a major snowstorm in this area could dampen turnout, the main House Republican super PAC, the Congressional Leadership Fund, reportedly hired multiple private snowplows today to help clear the precincts where Republicans think they might outperform Democrats. We will be monitoring candidate headquarters and results as they come in. And we go now to the great Steve Kornacki, who is at the big board. Steve, what do you got for me? We got the first return to Alex. This is coming in. Let's explain how this is going to work here. There are two counties, parts of two counties that comprise the third congressional district of New York. The big one is Nassau County. That's on Long Island. We expect that's going to make up at least 80 percent of the vote tonight. The other is the part we have some votes in from now. This is actually a part of New York City you're seeing here, the borough of Queens, the far eastern portion of Queens. This is going to make up, we think, about 20 percent, probably at the max 20% of the vote uh, tonight, but that is where we have some votes so far. And what you're looking at, everything you see right here is from this portion of Queens. This is the more democratic part of the district, although not necessarily overwhelmingly democratic. So Tom Swazi right now, you can see with the votes that were just released here, has an advantage of 30 points over Mozzie Pillip. Now, the key thing to keep in mind, this will be true, I think, when NASA begins reporting too. The earliest returns and reports we're going to get tonight are going to be the most favorable to Swazi and to the Democrats. Why? Because there's extensive early voting in this district. There was also a fair amount of mail-in voting, and the Democrats have been doing better, especially with mail-in voting, than Republicans have. There were indications from the turnout data that there was going to be a big gap between the early mail vote and the same-day vote. So we expected a big number for Swazi coming out of the first batch here from Queens. That's what it looks like this is. This total number of votes matches up almost perfectly with the number of absentee ballots and early votes uh, Queens told us had been cast prior to Election Day. So the question then becomes, Pillip is probably going to make gains here in Queens throughout the night. Where does she need to get? Well, in 2022, 
when George Santos, the Republican, won this district. He did not win this portion of the district, but he got close. The margin in 2022 here was the Democrats by four points. Now, Santos won the district by about eight, so he had a bit of cushion uh, uh, here. He could afford to lose potentially by a little bit more, but Pillup probably wants to get this down to single digits tonight, 10 or less probably in Queens. Again, that's what the same day vote is going to start coming in. You can expect these numbers to move. The question is going to be, how much do they move? And then again, we're waiting for our first reports from the big portion of the district, the Nassau County portion of the district. And just keep in mind, the Nassau County portion of the district in 2022, the Republicans won it by 10 points. So this is going to be, the again, 80% of the vote here. The Republicans won it by 10. When we do get numbers from Nassau, I think you can expect it'll be the best numbers from Nassau Swazi gets in the night. And the question as the night progresses is going to be, how far will that Swazi early lead fall? Can Republicans get the lead in Nassau County? Can they start to build it up, you know, five, 10 points, something like that? I, obviously, they'd like to be five points or above in Nassau. But maybe the way the turnout works, it could, it could take less than that because a lot of uh, vote we're seeing in uh, in Nassau relative to Queens. Steve, can you talk a little bit more about the demographics of the Nassau County part of this? I mean, beyond just the sort of more Republican, more Democrat, Queens versus Nassau. Can you talk a little bit more about who is in the Glen Cove area, for example? Yeah, I mean, look, it varies. Glen Cove itself, and this is where Swazi's from, is actually changing pretty dramatically demographically. In 2010, it was Glen Cove, the city of Glen Cove, which has, you know, about uh, 20,000 people. Um, it was about 75%, about three quarters white. Now the number, uh, 10 plus years later, is under 60%. There's been a big increase in the Hispanic population in Glen Cove. Again, this is sort of in the northern part of this district. Overall, what you see, though, in this district, the pattern you're going to find is a lot of money, a lot of college degrees, a lot of money, especially in the northern part, especially along the northern shore here, uh, the north shore portion of this district. What's new, what changed after 2020 in the redistricting and what gave the Republicans a bit of a better hand here politically is this section of Nassau County was added. This sort of southern portion of the district was added. And these are some Republican strongholds here, traditional Republican strongholds. We're talking about Levittown, Massapequa. Uh, and if you've noticed, Maisie, if you've been watching Mozzie Pope, excuse me, has been campaigning a lot with former Congressman Peter King. You remember him? Longtime fixture in Congress, Republican from the southern part of Nassau County. He's got particular appeal in this portion of the district. So I think no coincidence, she's been campaigning with him. And in fact, Democrats in their advertising for Swazi actually have touted in their television advertising Swazi's work with Peter King. They've used Peter King by name here, again, in a bit of an appeal here uh, to that portion of the uh, of the Nassau County uh, part of the district. When Swazi represented this district in Congress, he did not represent this portion of it. So this is where Republicans did a lot of their improvement in 2022, and they're counting on big numbers from this portion of Nassau County. So it's a, it's a lot more sort of money here, call it sort of the Great Gatsby area of this district. And this is more of a sort of traditional middle class blue collar portion that was added. Steve Kornacki, thank you as always, my friend. Um, please, you know, just send up a flare if you need a Diet Coke or a protein bar, but you're not allowed to move from that spot. So, and, uh, can I, Alex, can I just, sorry to interrupt, but we are just, as so you can see here, we are now, as I've been speaking, getting some same day voting, it looks like, again, from the Queens portion of the district. So already you can start to see the initial report, just the early vote had Swazi ahead by 30, and now it's down already to 26.4. So basically, Pillip has shaved almost four points off with what looks to be the initial 
initial same-day results from Queens County. And again, 30, it started at how far does that fall? That's the question. Um, Obviously, this is rolling coverage we have here. We will be back to you, Steve, as soon as there is an update. Uh, But just stay there, my friend. We're going to go now to friend of the show, Claire McCaskill, former U.S. Senator for the great state of Missouri and co-host of MSNBC's How to Win in 2024 podcast. Claire, I wonder how you're looking at this race, because a lot of folks have pinned, um, well, not pinned, but have suggested it might be a bellwether for how Democrats and Republicans need to campaign ahead of November and that it may be indicative of either Trump or Biden's fortunes, presuming Trump is the nominee in November. How much stock are you putting in it? A lot. Um, Now, I think the snowstorm kind of changes that calculation somewhat. If the weather had been a little bit more friendly, I think it would be more of a canary in the ultimate coal mine. Because, you know, Alex, this year is going to be the year of the suburbs. How will the suburbs go? Will the women in the suburbs use the Dobbs decision as a motivator to vote against the Republicans that have taken such an extreme position on a right that they had for 50 years? Or will those same women and men in the suburbs react to the immigration issue at the border that they're seeing more acutely in New York right now in the suburbs? Will that be a motivator? And that's really what this election is about. I mean, these two candidates are very interesting. The Democrat is on advertising on Fox, not saying he's a Democrat. And the Republican is actually registered as a Democratic voter. So they are going for that purple vote, the vote that is willing to vote for Biden in 2020 and turned around and voted for the Republican for governor in 2022. Claire, you mentioned abortion and immigration, and I kind of want to talk about the former for a second, just because Jen Palmieri, your co-host on the MSNBC podcast, How to Win in 2024, was saying earlier in Chris Hayes' hour that she thought abortion wasn't quite the sort of animating factor in a blue state like New York as it would be in other states across the country. Do do you agree with that? And um, if not, can you expand on it? Well, I, I... It may not be quite as motivating, but there was something about that decision that I believe felt very personal to most women in the country. And and it was, you know, the first time in our lifetimes that the Supreme Court didn't give more rights under the Constitution, but rather took them away. And I agree that in some states where there's such extreme laws, for example, the Senate race in Texas it's going to be a lot about abortion. Um, and in, in my state, where a, a rape victim is being mandated by the government to give birth, a, a, a 12-year-old who's been raped by her father, yes, it will be more motivating those places, but it still is on people's mind. And they know the Republican Party brought them this. And whether it's slaughter of children in classrooms with military-style weapons or abortion, there are issues right now in the suburbs that do not work in the Republicans' favor. Claire McCaskill, um, we have a lot more to discuss about this race and and other developments that have happened today. Um, Stick around with me, please, if you would. We have lots more ahead this evening, including special counsel Jack Smith's turn to respond to Donald Trump's bid to get the Supreme Court to throw out Trump's election interference case. But first, Trump's latest power grab, which is straight out of the authoritarian's playbook and for which and to which the Republican Party appears Totally fine. Totally fine with that. Plus, special election results as they come in right after the break. There comes a point 
when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. I hear we have more of the vote in tonight's New York special election. Steve Kornacki is, of course, standing by at the big board with the latest. Steve, what does the crystal ball tell you? Well, we, some interesting things we can show you here right now. And literally, as I was uh, just teeing this up, we got more votes. And again, this is all from Queens. We've yet to get a report from Nassau County, which is the bulk of this district. But I do think what we're seeing from Queens right now is significant. I'll just zoom in on it right here. It's the same as the overall result. But you see 63% to 30 37% Swazi is leading in this district, uh, in this uh, county. And critically now, we've got basically three quarters of the vote from the Queens portion of this district in. And if you remember, when we got the initial result here, we got the early vote and we got the mail-in vote. They tabulate that and release that first. We say that's the best numbers for the Democrats that you're going to see. And it will come down from there. So that was Swazi plus 30 when we got the initial report. We've now had more than 10,000 more votes come in in Queens since we got that initial report. And the Swazi margin has come down, but it hasn't come down that much. This is sitting here right now at 25 points. We'll call that 26 points right now. So it's come down from 30 to 26. Remember, in 2022, when George Santos, uh, the Republican, won this district, the Democrats only won the Queens portion by four points. Now go back one election before that. In 2020, the presidential election, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, 2020, Joe Biden carried the Queens portion of this district by 19 points. And if you remember, this is one of fewer than 20 congressional districts in the country that voted for Joe Biden in 2020, right? And then that in 2022 voted for a Republican House candidate in 2022. It was Biden by eight in 2020, and it was Santos by eight in 2022. So one of the questions we were asking tonight is, are these results going to look more like 2020 or are they going to look more like 2022? And I think with three quarters of the vote in, at least in the Queens portion of this district, you're looking at a result from this portion of the district that is tracking much more close to the 2020 result than it is to the 2022 result. So at least on the Queens side of the border of this district right now, these have got to be awfully encouraging early numbers for Democrats with the caveat that we don't have anything in right now yet from Nassau County, which is going to be 80% of the vote. And remember, in 2022, Santos won the Nassau portion of this district by 10 points. But if you're a Democrat, I think you got to be feeling probably a little bit optimistic based on what you're seeing here so far. Yeah, even though it's 20%, that is a large margin. Thank you, Steve. We're going to be back to you shortly with more updates. Um, if you are a Republican candidate for Senate, 
this, what we're about to show you, is not the kind of reception you want to get from members of your own party. That was Arizona Senate candidate and prominent election denier Republican Carrie Lake getting loudly booed by members of her own party at the Arizona GOP's annual convention last month. Carrie Lake is not what you might call a unifying figure even inside the Republican Party. But in October, she was endorsed by Donald Trump, which means that the rest of the Republican Party now has to fall in line behind Carrie Lake. And so today, Ms. Lake was officially endorsed by the National Republican Party's Senate campaign arm. This is just the latest sign that the National Republican Party now appears to exist for the sole purpose of carrying out Donald Trump's bidding. Just this week, Trump endorsed another election denier, Michael Watley, to replace Ronna McDaniel, who is the current head of the Republican National Committee. Trump also endorsed his own daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, to be the RNC new co-chair, which would make her a top deputy of the party chair. Trump says that this endorsement is about helping to ensure fair and transparent elections across the country. It is a move that is also very much the type of thing you see in authoritarian dictatorships. Joining me now is former RNC chair and co-host of The Weekend on MSNBC, Michael Steele. And still with me, of course, is Claire McCaskill. Michael, um, which is worse, the election denier or the nepotism? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think what we try to do on the Republican side is a little bit of both, you know, just it's, you know, it's like a good martini. It is, you know, gotta have it dry or with an olive, you know, the twist, whatever you kind of mix it up, right? That's the thinking here. You know, you've got, you've got Watley from North Carolina who has been a, a Trump, uh, uh, sycophant for a long time. You now have Trump's daughter-in-law coming in and taking over as co-chair, or presumably that's the way that vote will go. And then, of course, you know, Trump wants to put one of his guys in as sort of the the day-to-day overseer of the Republican National Committee. Let's not lose sight of what this is all about. This is not about fair and, and open and safe elections. This is about grift. This is about the diversion of RNC funds during the rest of this uh, presidential cycle to pay for Trump's legal bills. It it happened when he was president. It had happened since he's been president, and it will continue to happen going forward. Now they have greater control over how that money is going to be raised, how that money is going to be spent. You don't think his daughter-in-law is going to make sure her father-in-law is taken care of? Of course not. So the reality of it is the party has now said, Donald Trump, it's all yours. Whatever aspect of it, whatever feature of it you want, you got. We've got the Senate lined up. We've got the House lined up. We've got the party apparatus lined up. So this is now fully full on the MAGA party. Any remnants of Reagan, uh, Bush, Eisenhower, gone. Um, Claire, the cynic in me says, "Okay, it's a MAGA party. If they're going to try and win, maybe that's what they think they have to do. And yet history shows us that Donald Trump is terrible at picking winners. I think the last time the RNC let Donald Trump handpick officials, almost all of his picks ended up pleading. Is it guilty to federal crimes or being credibly accused 
of sexual assault to say nothing of his Senate picks. I think, remember Blake Masters in Arizona, Herschel Walker in Georgia, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. I mean, this guy has whatever the opposite of a Midas touches when it comes to elections. Well, make no mistake, the Republicans in the Senate are trying hard to keep that mistake from not repeating. And the way they've done that is they they made Steve Daines chair of the Republican Senate committee. He went down to Mar-a-Lago, kissed the ring, said, I'm all for you, Trump. I'm going to be loyal to you. Will you work with us? And so they have really tried to keep Trump from going out on his own and endorsing these really big MAGA candidates. I mean, look in Montana. Trump endorsed mm-hmm. the guy that Mitch McConnell wants in Montana, Rosendale, just filed, who is a MAGA loyalist from the House. They're going to have a knockdown, dragout Republican primary for the Senate in Montana. But Trump is not on the MAGA side of that equation this time. So McConnell has really tried to outmaneuver him by trying to force him into the lane of what they believe are stronger candidates. Now, I'll just tell you this. I watched that video of Carrie Lake at that Republican convention. And having spoken at many of my party's conventions in my state, all I can say is yikes. I mean, if I walked into the room of the people that are the most active in my party and was greeted with that kind of booing, I mean, it would be a brutal reality. So I think they got trouble in Arizona no matter what Trump does. Well, yeah, Michael, I mean, to Claire's point, is it horse trading? You get Mitch McConnell's Montana Senate candidate, but then you have to give him a a mulligan, I guess, to use the golf term in Arizona with Carrie Lake. Well, look, I mean, take both of those races. I mean, the reality of it is in each of those instances, MAGA is going to control who becomes the next uh, nominee. So, yeah, uh, McConnell may have boxed, uh, you know, Trump into endorsing uh, his candidate. Doesn't mean, one, that Donald Trump won't change his mind and unendorse that endorsement. Right. And move away from it. But you still have the base is the part that votes. And so it doesn't matter in the main whether McConnell wins that endorsement battle or Trump does. Trump knows that at the end of the day, he's going to have his vote turn out for the candidate that is closest to him because that's who they want. So, yeah, the booing was not MAGA booing Kerry. Those were traditional Arizona Republicans who are frustrated by what has become of their party, not a reflection of necessarily of where the party is going to end up. She got the endorsement of the senatorial committee. What more does that tell you? So the booing really didn't matter much, did it? Because it's already baked in where this is going to go. MAGA controls the outcome of elections, the primary elections in the Republican Party. And that is a reality. And what's going to be interesting to watch is in a state like Maryland now that Larry Hogan has jumped into this U.S. Senate race there. The dynamics on the ground there have changed and could be a lesson for the party going forward because he now has so much changed the dynamics that he potentially levels up the game for Republicans in the state to win that seat. Not the MAGA Republicans. He's running independent of them. And that's going to be an important uh, race to watch in that regard as well. Do you still get to call yourself a Republican if you're not a MAGA Republican? Just asking. Michael Steele and Claire McCaskill, thank you both, my friends, for your time tonight. I appreciate it. 
We have much more to get to tonight, including the new deadline the Supreme Court set in the ongoing battle over whether Donald Trump should be immune from prosecution for plotting to overturn the 2020 election. And through the hour, we are going to bring you the latest votes in the New York special election to fill George Santos's House seat. More on that coming up next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. We have yet another update on that vote in the New York special election this evening. Steve Kornacki, once again, at the big board. Steve, what do you have? So uh, two things we can tell you. First of all, we have been saying uh, that waiting for the first vote from NASA. We do have the first vote from NASA. You see a ton of red here. I want to show you what that is, though. It's almost nothing. (laughs) This looks like a precinct or two. Put this in some perspective. We are expecting tonight about 155,000 votes from the Nassau County portion of the district. So this is a thousand. We're actually trying to track down exactly where it's from. And I think one thing to keep in mind in Nassau is it could be potentially just a slow process in terms of getting substantial vote reported out of there. But here's where we stand right now, because we've got a the lion's share of the vote is now in in Queens here. Uh, You can see it is a margin still of 24 points for Tom Swazi with more than 80 percent in. And the question, again, we said we were asking tonight was there are two sort of recent elections to reference in this district. One was the 2022 midterms when the Democrats lost the district and they only won this Queens portion of the district by four points. And then there's a 2020 presidential election when Joe Biden won the district and won the Queens portion of the district by 19 points. This clearly is on track to land somewhere at or above Joe Biden's performance in 2020. So Democrats have gotten everything that they wanted out of Queens and more. This is a significant pad for Swazi over what the benchmarks were for Democrats in Queens. And it also suggests, and this is the crucial part and why uh, we're waiting for a, a chunk of Nassau to come in. There was a a, a trend in Queens and Nassau that was identical between 2020 and 2022. This is, again, this is 2022 and this is 2020. And in the Nassau side of the district, in 2022, the Republicans won it by 10 points, uh, 10 points. And in 2020, uh, Joe Biden won it by five points. So what is that? That was a swing, 10 for the Republicans to five for the Democrats, a swing of 15 points, 15 for the Democrats, four for the Democrats, a swing of 15 points. There was a uniform swing in 2022 between Queens and Nassau County. And what we've seen tonight, as we've just established, is that Queens is on track to be a 2020-style performance, a very Democratic-friendly style performance. And if we see anything approximating a uniform swing in Nassau County, you're looking at that. That's 2020 in Nassau County. That's 22 in Nassau County. That's a big Democratic win That's a big Republican win. So the Democrats right now, right now, I think, have gotten, as we said, 
They've gotten everything they wanted and more out of Queens. And if we get an indication when we start getting substantial vote on NASA, we're still waiting for you know significant votes. But if we get an indication that anything like that swing is also playing out in Nassau County, like it did in 2022, then Tom Squazzi's on his way to victory in this thing. This is a great early start for Democrats. We are now waiting to see if it's replicated in Nassau County. Steve, do we have any indication about turnout? There was a lot of talk about the snowstorm, and I'll just say as a New Yorker, it wasn't much of a snowstorm in my, my neck of the woods. But I wonder if we have any numbers or any any kind of metrics by which we can judge. Yeah, no, I mean, we're expecting, as I said, uh, a turnout here in the Nassau portion, probably of somewhere around 155,000 votes. We're expecting somewhere around 30,000 votes in Queens. That would be a turnout of 185,000 voters total. By comparison, 2022 midterm, you know, very high interest election. Midterms had very high turnout in 2022. This would be two-thirds of the 2022 total. In 2022, there were 270,000 votes cast across this district. So frankly, if this thing lands anywhere around 185,000, which is what we're expecting right now, I think for a special election with really nothing else on the ballot here, this is a very impressive number just in, in, in terms of the total here. I think it's higher than you would have expected. Yeah, certainly, especially with what we were told was a foreclosing weather event. Uh, Thank you, Steve. We are going to be right back with a live report from Swazi headquarters. Stay with us. Well, you know, it was embarrassing, obviously, and, you know, you never should have got past the vetting process. So how that works, I'm not sure, but uh, that was a disgrace. And uh, they did the right thing, getting rid of them. Voters today in New York's 3rd Congressional District are deciding who will fill George Santos's empty House seat. As we wait for more votes to roll in, the question now is how much Mr. Santos was on voters' minds when they went to the ballot box earlier today. Joining me now is Emily No, co-author of Politico New York Playbook and a reporter covering New York politics. Emily, thanks for being here tonight. I wonder how much of a shadow George Santos is casting over this, because traditionally, I think as Politico points out, Voters tend to penalize the party whose controversy caused the the sort of special election in the first place. Do you have a sense of how much people are talking about Santos? The Democrats certainly are talking about George Santos a lot more than the Republicans have been. We have seen Tom Suozzi, the Democratic nominee, in these last couple days try to paint his opponent, Mazi Pillup, the nominee for the GOP, as George Santos 2.0 because he says she hasn't been vetted, she hasn't put herself out in front of the press to face questions from the public, to detail her positions. So as much as the Democrats have been talking about George Santos and finally using that strategy of linking the Republicans to him, the House Republicans from New York especially have been trying to distance themselves from Santos for the better part of a year now. They hardly ever speak his name unless they're asked about him. Do you do you have a sense of whether voter vote? I mean, we had that little bit of sound from a man on the street uh, at a polling location at the top of this segment. Do you have a sense of how much voters are talking about Santos and or the other immigrate the other issues that candidates have been talking about, whether immigration, U.S. support for Israel, the war in Gaza and or abortion? So Santos does come up from time to time. Certainly people in this district don't want to be associated with him anymore. And all are still questioning how it came to be that he was elected office, was able to stay in office for so long, considering all the alleged fraud and the lying. But of the issues you mentioned, illegal immigration, border security, the migrant crisis, that is what feels like top of mind for Democratic and Republican voters. The Israel-Hamas war, because of the large Jewish population here, also 
is a top issue. And the, the Democrats want abortion and gun safety to be out there, too. And some voters do talk about that. But I find that of both parties and the unaffiliated independents, they're talking mostly about border security and that war. Can I ask you, I know this sounds like a sort of silly question, but it, since it's been talked about so much as affecting turnout, what was the weather like, Emily, in, in you know the area you're in in Nassau County? So I spent uh, the better part of the day in the city, and, and as you noted, the snow wasn't that bad. It was wet and sticky. But here, where a lot of people are driving to the polls, they were accepting free rides from both campaigns to get to the polls. Certainly, Republicans are more likely to be day of voters, and they were very dependent, the party was, on people getting out and casting their ballots there. But the plows were out. Uh, Bruce Blakeman, who is a Nassau County executive here, a Republican uh, who was a surrogate for Mazi Pillow, made sure that the roads were as clear as they could be. And we also saw uh, a Republican pack supporting Pillup uh, pay for some plowing around Republican-heavy districts as well. So the snow was a factor, but it wasn't as big a factor as perhaps Democrats and Republicans had feared. And, and Emily, you know, just as much as we're trying to draw inferences about the national presidential race in November, it's probably worth noting that neither Trump nor Biden was ne- was welcomed, if you will, in this district as a, as a surrogate, or that endorsement was not something sought for by either Republicans or Democrats. Is that right? And that's exactly right. Neither of those likely presidential candidates is very popular here in this sort of moderate, centrist, independent, independent kind of district. Swazi made sure to keep his distance from Biden, actually asked the president to stay away. He was here fundraising not too far away, but he certainly wasn't rallying for Swazi. Mazi Pillup in the final days did sort of reach out to Trump and say that she was welcoming his help, but he didn't show up. Uh, they don't speak about Trump, the Republicans do, from the stage, again, unless reporters ask them directly about it. But that could mean a lot uh, in terms of what the presidential election in November says. This is a bellwether, but it's not the most perfect bellwether because a lot of uh, Republic of suburbs in the state in particular are leaning more Democratic. Long Island has sort of swung the other way and is becoming more Republican. So we'll see what happens tonight with the results. But that is sort of an outlier, could be an outlier when we consider bellwethers and what this race portends for the future. All right, Emily No, straight from Swazi headquarters. Going to be a lot happening this evening. Thanks for your time tonight, Emily. Coming up, the Supreme Court wants special counsel Jack Smith to respond to Donald Trump's latest bid for immunity from criminal prosecution. Just how much later could this push the start of Trump's federal criminal trial in Washington, D.C.? Plus, we'll have more results from New York's special election as they come in. Stay with us. One week from today, next Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the dot. That is the deadline. Chief Justice John Roberts gave special counsel Jack Smith today to respond to Donald Trump's latest bid for immunity. Yesterday, Trump filed an emergency application challenging a federal appeals court ruling which said he was not immune from criminal prosecution. Trump's request now to the Supreme Court is to effectively freeze his federal election interference criminal trial. His lawyers argue the special counsel seeks urgently to force President Trump into a months-long criminal trial at the height of campaign season, effectively sidelining him and preventing him from campaigning against the current president, to whom the special counsel ultimately reports President Biden. Joining me now is the brilliant Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, thank you for being here. I am not a lawyer, as I say frequently, but the Supreme Court giving Jack Smith a week to respond to all of this 
seems like the court is not moving so efficiently, shall we say. Am I wrong here in thinking that? No, I, I had the same reaction, Alex. It does not suggest uh, that they're acting with a lot of urgency. But of course, Jack Smith could file his response before a week goes by. In fact, if they're not working on it right now, as you and I are speaking, they're doing it wrong. They've known this was coming. They knew Donald Trump would be filing uh, his request by Monday. And so I, I have to think that they are crossing the T's and dotting the I's at this moment and will likely beat that deadline by quite a bit. Do you, um, so what do you make of, assuming Jack Smith files the, before the deadline of the 20th, what do you expect in terms of indications for how the Trump, how the Trump, how this, how the court is thinking of Trump's appeal here? You know, it's difficult to say because they can go in a lot of different directions. Uh, the, the thing that he, they could do that would, I think, give us the best sense is to simply deny the stay, uh, treat it as a petition for uh, certiorari review and say, we're going to let the lower court decision stand. That would be a very loud uh, response to what they think of it and case is over. On the other hand, they could decide they want to grant the stay. They're going to let Donald Trump even take the case to the en banc, the full court of the Court of Appeals below, and then before the U.S. Supreme Court. That would be the other extreme, which would suggest that this is on a very slow boat. Uh, and in that case, I can't imagine the, the uh, trial occurring before the election. What's more likely, though, Alex, is somewhere in between that they do decide to take it up, but they, they do it do so on a more expedited basis. And if they do that, I think a decision could be made within a month or two and get this case back on track for trial by summertime. Can we talk a little bit about that, though? If they take a month or two to effectively unfreeze the case, to put it in layman's terms, I mean, A, what's your expectation about the Alvin Bragg case, which is kind of on hold as the feds work out the timetable for their criminal election interference case? And then B, I mean, is the Supreme Court going to really consider the implications of, as Trump's lawyers point out, having a federal election interference case in the middle of a campaign? So in terms of coordinating the other cases, I think it'll actually work out just fine. Uh, you know, we've got this hearing in New York on Thursday, so we'll know more about the trial there. But March 25th appears to be the trial date for the New York hush money case. That trial won't last more than a couple of weeks, and so that one will be long over. And so I think that puts the federal election interference case on track for a trial to start early summer, maybe around June 1st. And then with regard to your other question about whether this is a legitimate argument that the president, uh, a, a, camp, a candidate for president needs to be campaigning, all defendants would have that argument. Everybody has a job. Everybody has important things to do. And so uh, I don't think that that should interfere. I think a trial, it gets set by a court in its own pace. And the idea that I have more important things to do just is not part of the consideration that this court should be looking at. Um, so we're going to have more intel on the Alvin Bragg case, as you point out, hearing on Thursday. Judge Angoron is also supposed to rule in uh, A.G. James' uh, civil fraud case. Do you have any expectation there, given the combativeness between the judge and Trump's defense team in the last week? I don't. I, I don't know. You know, there has been this reporting about uh, the judge asking for additional information about a perjury charge with um, Alan Weisselberg. And so that has delayed his his decision here. Um, you know, difficult to know how things are going to come out. But in light of the summary judgment uh, decision that Judge Engoron issued, it seems to me very likely that he will find a verdict in favor of the attorney general and that we'll see some big numbers. Big numbers due by Friday. Barbara McQuaid, our our expert. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Barb. Really appreciate it.
That is our show for tonight.